Good morning. This morning's scripture is from Daniel chapter 1, verses 1 through 21. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Aspenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring, that, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skilled in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank, Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself, and God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink, for why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. At the end of ten days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar, and the king spoke with them, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus.
It is not all about you. It's not all about you. And it is an important message, really, for all of us to learn. But it's a really important message for us as we begin to study the book of Daniel. Because, you see, when we approach a book like Daniel, we tend to approach it as though it's all about Daniel. We approach this book as though Daniel and his friends are the heroes of the story. In fact, if you look in some old hymnals, and some of our more seasoned members might be familiar with a song called Dare to be a Daniel. Dare to be a Daniel, dare to stand alone, dare to have a purpose firm, dare to make it known. And so we're tempted to treat the stories of Daniel as if Daniel is the purpose, as if he's the main character, as if it's all about Daniel. But I'm sorry, Daniel, it's not all about you. The main character in this story, and the main character throughout this whole book, is God. God is the main character of the story. In fact, the home groups tonight, they're studying, and we have some questions that we use for studying the Bible and some, some special thoughts to help guide our study of the Bible. And the very first thing in understanding the Scripture correctly, gee, God is the hero of the story. God, not any human, is the protagonist. He's the main character of the story. It's not all about you, Daniel. It's about God and what God is doing. Now, make no mistake, Daniel and his friends are truly heroic, and we can learn from their example, but they are not the main character of this story. It's all about God. So, as we read the first chapter of the book of Daniel, we need to begin by asking the first question, what do we learn about God from this first chapter of Daniel? Because if this book, if this narrative is not about Daniel ultimately, but about God, what do we learn about God in this chapter? And friends, what's clear about God from this first chapter of Daniel is that God is sovereign. God is sovereign. No matter what we see the human actors in this story doing, it's evident that God is sovereign. He has the supreme power and the authority. And we see this truth clearly because three times in this chapter we hear the phrase, God gave. God gave. Three times in this chapter because behind the scenes, God is moving the pieces. The first thing that we see God gave comes in verses 1 and 2. Look at verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. That's the history. That's the history of what happened. Those are the parts, the the humans moving on the field of history. But then, verse 2, we get the theology. Listen to verse 2. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim king of Judah, into his hand. Friends, history can tell us what happened. Theology tells us why it happened. Through the eyes of history, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, was powerful. He was a big deal, and he thought he was a big deal. Nebuchadnezzar thought it was all about him. He thought that what he was doing was about his name and his greatness, his plans and his purposes. But verse 2 pulls back the curtain and goes, Nope, Nebuchadnezzar, you didn't win because of you. Because you're so powerful and you're so great. God gave Jehoiakim and Judah into your hand. 
You might think it's all about you. You might think it's all about what you purposed and planned. But it's about God. God gave Jehoiakim and Judah into your hands. And friends, things may look bad for God and His people. The book opens and things look bad. The king of Judah is a mere vassal, a puppet of Babylon. The best and the brightest of Judah have been exiled. The temple of God is ransacked. Many of the implements have been put into the temple of the gods of Babylon. History sees that Babylon is ascendant, but theology sees a sovereign God who's moving all the pieces. History sees Babylon as powerful and winning, but theology sees behind the curtain. God gave. It's as we sang this morning, this is my Father's world. Let me never forget that though the wrong seems oft so strong, God is the ruler yet. Though Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon seem oh so strong in this story, God is the sovereign ruler yet. It's not all about you, Nebuchadnezzar. God is the hero. He's the protagonist. He's the main actor in this story. God gave. And now in this instance, we know that God gave, and we know why God gave, because He sent His prophets to His people time and time and time again, but they refused to listen, they refused to repent, so this was the just judgment that God had announced ahead of time. Isaiah 39, verses 6 and 7, Isaiah the prophet declares to King Hezekiah, Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord, and some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. And isn't that exactly what we hear unfolding in Daniel chapter 1? God has given His people into the hand of Babylon. But friends, in doing so, there's something important to remember. Even though God gave His people over in judgment, a just judgment, it doesn't mean that He abandoned them. And it doesn't mean that God abandoned His love for them. In the book of Leviticus, God had spelled out all the warnings about disobedience to Him that ultimately ended in exile. But at the end of the warnings in Leviticus 26, verse 44, the Lord declared, Yet for all of that, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not spurn them. Neither will I abhor them so as to destroy them utterly and break my covenant with them. For I am the Lord their God. Church, even in judgment, there is mercy. Even in discipline, there is love. Even in our unfaithfulness, God remains stubbornly faithful to us. He will hold us fast. God is still with His people, even as they are scattered now in Babylon. And friends, that's evidence, again, here in chapter 1, through what God gave Daniel and his friends while they were in Babylon. Remember, three times in this chapter it says that God gave. God gave Judah into the hand of Babylon in verse 2. In verse 9, this is what we read. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. 
God gave favor in the sight of his captors when Daniel requested an exemption from the food that was being served at the king's table. God gave. Now, what exactly is going on in this whole section here? We have the Chaldean education. We have food from the king's table. We have new names. What's happening? Friends, what's happening is assimilation. Church, we always need to be wary of friendly captivity. We need to be wary of friendly captivity. When God's people, Israel, were captives in Egypt, they were oppressed and subjected to slavery, so they knew they were captives, and they knew they should resist their captors. But friends, friendly captivity is so much more dangerous to God's people. Because our captors try to convince us that they're all right. They're good guys, and they try to win our favor. They try to win us over to their side, to their beliefs, to their worldview. But people of God, remember, no matter how friendly your captors are, they still want to make you and keep you as captives. The Babylonians are trying to assimilate Daniel and the exiles away from their Jewishness, trying to make them willing captives of Babylonia, but they'll still be captives, assimilating them away from the marks of their identity as the people of God, welcoming them with open and friendly arms into a new identity, into Babylon, which, and as we established last week, Babylon represents a world order in rebellion against the true God. Friends, what's happening to Daniel and his friends here is something that is actually called in, in, medical, in, uh, in psychological literature as strange-making. Strange-making. Daniel and his friends are removed from their familiar settings to a strange place. They're, forcibly, they're forced to change their familiar habits of thought and of eating and of action made strange. They're stripped of their familiar marks of identity, all for the purpose of assimilating them away from their identity as Jews, as the people of God, so that they will be imprinted upon with a new identity assimilated into the worldview of their captives of Babylon. Church, friendly captivity is the most dangerous because this culture tempts us to believe it is our friend, or at least benign. But make no mistake, willing or unwilling, the goal is to keep you in captivity. You know, consider the change of names for Daniel and his friends. Now, while some of the the translations are debated as to exactly what they mean, what's clear is that Daniel and his four friends walked into Babylon with names that acknowledged Yahweh, the true God, and their names were changed to acknowledge now and worship the gods of Babylon. Daniel means God is my judge, but his his name was changed to Belteshazzar. Bel, who is a goddess, will protect. Hananiah means Yahweh has been gracious, but it was changed to Shadrach, which means inspired by Aku, a god. Mishael is who is what God is. And that was changed to Meshach, meaning belonging to Aku, a Babylonian god. And finally, Azariah means Yahweh has helped, and it became Abednego, servant of Nego. The goal in renaming was to make them ashamed of their old identities, so that they would willingly adopt new identities as Babylonians. And church, renaming is powerful. 
Renaming is powerful. Today, you need to beware because Babylon is trying to give us new names. The world is trying to make us ashamed of our identity in Christ so that we will accept a new identity that culture is crafting for us. Because those who remained faithful to Christ and the teaching of Scripture used to be called by names like faithful or devout or true or good. But in Babylon today, we're being given names such as bigot and misogynist and racist and extremist and hater. The goal is to change others' perception of us and to change our own perceptions of us so that we will willingly adopt new identities that the culture is crafting for us so that we will become willing captives of Babylon. Church, beware when the world tries to rename you. Last week, we received an email prayer request from Zoe, a women's pregnancy center that we support in Rockland. It was a prayer request for another pregnancy center. They wrote, Today we have a very specific prayer request concerning one of our sister centers, ABBA, Women's Choice, located down in Portland. The main chapter of the Democratic Socialists of America has scheduled a protest at their facility this Friday, and the purpose is, according to their website, to let our community members know that this evil institution exists in the heart of Maine. To expose these clinics, these pregnancy clinics, is just the beginning of what we've planned. Help us push fake clinics out of the state. The people of Maine deserve real health care. So ABBA, a crisis pregnancy center, which provides support, counsel, ultrasounds, rent assistance, diapers, baby clothing, children's furniture, and more, has been labeled as evil. It's evil. Why? Because they don't perform or refer for abortion. Therefore, they are evil and should be shut down. And they said that, and this email says the people of Maine deserve real health care. By real health care, they mean abortion. They've renamed abortion health care. Friends, taking the life of an innocent child has been renamed health care. Try to rename it all you want. But when an innocent life is violently ended, there's a name for that. And it's not health care. Church, beware of the renaming of Babylon. Because today there are those who are advocating that we should surgically cut the healthy genitals off of children and call it gender-affirming surgery. That we should pump our children full of chemicals that are used to chemically castrate sex offenders and call it gender-affirming treatment. Or after we've stolen from women their sports, their bathrooms, their locker rooms, and all their private places, we should call it progress. Today, saying such things, the fact that I'm saying such things, friends, if anybody hears me saying this, some of you are saying, that's hate speech. And this speech right here would be labeled by the world as hate speech. And I would be renamed a bigot or a fundamentalist or a transphobe for saying any of this. Beware of the renaming of Babylon. They're trying to rename us, to seduce us away from God. The Lord warns through the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 5.20, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Church, beware. Babylon is trying to rename us so that we might willingly accept the identities and the worldview 
that they have crafted for us. They're trying to seduce us away from faithfulness. The goal is to change others' perception of us and to change our own perception of us so we will willingly come and become willing captives of Babylon. But church, we must resist. We must draw a line in the sand like Daniel and his friends did. Verse 8 says, But Daniel resolved he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Now friends, why Daniel drew this exact line is actually hard to understand and a point of debate. Some believe that he was trying to eat kosher according to the dietary laws of the Mosaic Covenant. But if that was true, then he had no need to abstain from wine because the Mosaic Covenant, the Mosaic Covenant never forbids wine. Moreover, if his desire was to eat kosher, then that would have remained consistent through his whole life. Yet in Daniel chapter 10, verse 3, we'll find that while still living in the king's court, Daniel 10, verse 3 says that he ate delicacies, meat, and wine. So if the desire was to eat kosher, why would he change later in life? And if it wasn't about eating kosher, some say, well, Daniel just didn't want to eat food that might have been offered or sacrificed to idols. And the food from the king's table probably would have been part of a sacrifice to the gods of Babylon. And so Daniel was trying to avoid idolatry. But if that's true, the problem is that the vegetables he also received probably were also offered as part of that sacrifice to the gods of Babylon. So if it wasn't eating kosher or involving idolatry, others believed that since in that culture, because sharing a meal or a table with someone was a sign of friendship, this was a political statement. He was making a a political protest uh, against the king's overlordship. I won't sit at the same table. I won't be part of this. And it could be. But the fact is, when we read the text, it seems like it was a private protest. It seems like really only the eunuch and a couple of other people were aware of what was happening. So it doesn't seem like a big public statement or protest. And friends, finally, Daniel's actions were not taken to teach us how to eat today. Can we just put that one aside? Okay, guys, books like the Daniel Fast, the Daniel Plan, the Daniel Diet, they're junk. Throw them away. Throw them away. That is bad theology. Please stop saying they're biblical. If you want to give up meat and wine, I think that's a really sad way to live. But you're free to do so. But just stop saying that God directed it in this passage in Daniel. That's just bad biblical interpretation. So let's be done with that one. So what are we left with? Why did Daniel draw this line in the sand at the table about the food? And friends, I think the best explanation is found in the question, the question that was being tested. The the eunuch's concern was, you're not going to flourish physically if you don't eat this food. You're not going to flourish physically if you don't take the king's provision. If Daniel and his friends had eaten from the king's table, and if they were then found healthy and strong physically, who, why would they say they're healthy and strong? Well, of course you are. Why? Because you ate what the king provided. You ate of the king's provision, and thus, having consumed what the king provided, you've been made healthy and strong. The king is the source of your health and your strength. 
However, if Daniel and his friends flourished apart from the provision of the king's table, if they just ate vegetables and drank only water, again, a very sad diet, then who gets the credit for their physical flourishing? God does. Because only God could do that. Daniel and his friends flourished physically, not because of the provision of the king and his table, but because of the provision of God. Daniel and his friends said, I'm drawing a line in the sand, lest anyone think we are beholden to the king for our health. I don't want to believe it, and I don't want anybody else to believe that if I'm flourishing physically, it's because the king's given me anything. If I flourish in any, in any way, it's because God gave. Because God is sovereign. It's not all about Nebuchadnezzar. It's all about God. And what the same with their flourishing, we find, physically we find they're flourishing mentally and academically. Verse 17 says, as for the four youths, God gave them, there's the third gave, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. So Daniel and his friends received all of the learning and the training that everybody else there in Babylon did, but yet they had more in the end. Why did they have more in the end? Because God gave. Because God gave. They received the same provision, but yet had greater wisdom because God gave. Friends, Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon appear to be, and they believe that they are the greatest powers in the world. They believe that all were dependent upon them for their existence, for their flourishing physically and mentally. Babylon believes that it's in control of Daniel and his friends and all things. Babylon believes it's all about Babylon. But this chapter subverts that by saying, yeah, Babylon thinks it's all about Babylon, but it's not all about Babylon. God gave. God gave from the beginning, the middle, and the end. God gave. He is sovereign. It's all about Him. And as a result, Daniel and his friends saw this, friend. Daniel and his friends saw that God was sovereign, that God gave. And so they drew lines in the sand so that they would never forget and so the world would never think that they were beholden to or dependent upon Babylon for their existence. They said, we will live no lies. We will resist the renaming of this world because we know who actually pulls the strings. We know who will give us all that we need to provide our needs. And friends, if we are going to live faithfully here in Babylon, we need to remember the same thing. We need to know who it's all about. If you think it's all about this culture, if you think it's all about the intelligentsia, if you think it's all about the media, if you think it's all about the crowd then you're going to willingly feast from their table. You're going to uncritically drink from the wells of their wisdom. You're going to embrace their new names and new definitions. And you're going to enjoy their friendship. But friends, friendly captivity is still captivity. We will be captives of Babylon. Church, if we are going to remain faithful, living in the midst of Babylon, like Daniel and his friends, we need to remember that it's not all about Babylon. It's all about the Lord, who alone gives. Like Daniel and his friends, you and I are going to need to draw lines in the sand. And like Daniel and his friends, if we hope to remain faithful in public, then we should be practicing faithfulness in private. If you want to remain faithful in public, you need to be practicing faithfulness in private. Church, we entertain delusions. 
that we are going to be grand heroes of the faith like Daniel and his friends. We think, our mouths boast, I would face the lions. I'd be thrown into the fiery furnace. But friends, if you won't do it in private at the table like Daniel and his friends did, you will not stand publicly when the trial comes. If you're not faithful in the little things, if there are little compromises, then when it comes time for the big stand, you will not be ready. I mean, think about when Daniel started drawing this line about the table, which looks so confusing, and his friends were going, Daniel, 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 this is not a big deal. Daniel, don't be so legalistic. Daniel, culture has changed. You have to stay current with the times. Or my favorite, hey, Daniel, you don't want to be on the wrong side of history. I mean, I hate that one. How often do we hear that today? You don't want to be on the wrong side of history. Friends, that's a foolish statement. It assumes that Babylon or the culture is and ever will be on the right side of history. But friends, this chapter ends with a note that reminds us where the right side of history is. Look at verse 21. Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Cyrus? Whoa, whoa, whoa. I thought the king was Babylon. It was Nebuchadnezzar. Where's, where's, where's Nebuchadnezzar? What do you mean Daniel was there till Cyrus? Where's Nebuchadnezzar? Nebuchadnezzar's gone. Babylon's gone. By the end of the book, Daniel outlasted Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon, who appeared so powerful. So why should I bow to Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon? We find that by the end of the book, Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon, once so powerful, are no more. Friends, they weren't on the right side of history. Now they're just history. However, Daniel, who trusted in the Lord, the Ancient of Days, has outlasted the apparently overwhelming power of Babylon and King Nebuchadnezzar. So who's on the right side of history? It was as we sang in the new song that we introduced to you this morning. Though the nations rage, kingdoms rise and they fall. But there is still one king reigning over all. So I will not fear, for this truth remains. My God is the Ancient of Days. Church, right now, it may appear to be all about kings and politicians and celebrities and intelligentsia and influencers in Babylon. And they may offer us an appealing and friendly captivity if only we'll embrace their understanding of history and adopt their renaming of us and of all things. But church, it's not all about them. Kingdoms rise and movements rise and they fall. They seem so ascendant and powerful when they're up there. But church, all those that rise will fall. All the kingdoms will one day be history. The kingdoms that will one day be history can't tell us what is the right side of history. The only one who can tell us the right side of history is the author of history. The one who existed before history and the one who exists after history. The Ancient of Days. As we sang, there's none above Him, none before Him. All of time is in His hands. For His throne, it shall remain and ever stand. All the power, all the glory. So I will trust not in Babylon, but in His name. Because I see my God. And he's the ancient of days. Church, who is it all about? Who is the God who can give? 
Who is truly sovereign? Who alone will remain? Church, resolve to live no lies. Where must the lines in the sand be drawn? What will your life answer to the question, who is it all about? Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that kingdoms rise and fall, and they seem so scary and so powerful and so correct when they're in power. But your power is greater, and your power will remain. So help us to keep our eyes, like Daniel and his friends did, upon you. To see you, who are the Ancient of Days. To resist the invitation of the kingdoms of this world. To resist their seduction. To resist their renaming. To resist that we might stand on the right side of history. With the God of history. For you alone are the Ancient of Days. Keep our eyes on you, Father. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. In closing, please stand.